Hi everyone, how are you today? Hi Tandarina. Hi everybody, really excited for the session. Uh, Katarina, just uh, uh, to prepare for the talk, what what is the Cas9? Is it the uh, has some relation to the Cas9? You know, uh, CRISPR. Uh, yeah. Um, oh. Serena, I'm so sorry. I wanted to make a moderator and move to the audience. <laughs> Please come back up. I, I got it. I got it. <laughs> so sorry. Oh my God. <laughs> How are you, Serena? I'm sorry, Frank. <laughs> <laughs> Is that what happened? That oh happened. My God. To answer your question, Frank, uh, in the keywords, CRISPR-Cas9 is in there. I, I pulled this up by using the, the PMID. That was the, the quick way I pulled it up. Sorry, our guest speaker just wrote me an email. I have to respond. I'm sorry when I'm so unavailable. Oh, hi. There you are. Hello. Hi. <laughs> Thank Hello. you for coming. <laughs> Welcome to Science Society. Uh, this is uh, Dr. Shiri Levy. Um, meet everyone. Denise, Frank, Serena, and Jamie. <laughs> Hi, everyone. Hello. Hello. Hey, John. Hello, Shiri. Hi, Dr. Hello. Levy. We're so excited to, to have you with us today. Fairy, oh my god, it's fairy. so exciting to be here because I have never done this before. I'm super excited. It's yeah, a fun thank place. you. <laughs> uh, we'll wait maybe a couple more minutes if that's okay with you. <clears throat> of course, yeah. I think, I think like uh, these days, you know, five minutes or three minutes is definitely normal to wait for people to find where they need to go. Okay, perfect. Thank you. How was your day so far? Uh, my day was busy. I must say that I, I was a little nervous to get to this moment. So let's see how it's gonna go. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry that we made you feel nervous. But um, it's all of, most, almost all of our guests because it's the first time here. So they all feel like you and then in the end usually people i think enjoyed it at least that's what they say maybe they're just being nice oh go ahead please oh no i'm just gonna say once you start once you start talking and once you know everybody's listening with absolute rapt attention that you'll find the dialogue just flows nice and freely this place is really good for that cool. yeah you know moving from being a lecturer or a teacher, I always give talks in front of people. And then through COVID, we moved into Zoom and now doing this. <laughs> I love this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, this 
this app became really like started and became big, I guess, due to COVID mostly. So, uh, yeah. <clears throat> well, it's very much a choose your own adventure kind of app. And Katarina has just done such an amazing job at shaping this uh, science society. We just have a lot of great uh, speakers coming in and I'm, I've had a chance to preview your paper and I'm very excited about the work. It, it's just, it's fascinating. That is so nice. Thank you. I, I, the truth is that I wanted to, I need to get comfortable with the app and see how I can find other people's talks and listen to it while I, I work out or something. <laughs> well, this is a great room to start. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, if I may be so bold, it's the best one to start. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna bug Katerina later and see how I can get a hold of uh, old or uh, other people's talks. I'm excited. We have we have an entire to... archive uh, at your disposal, and at anyone so anyone can look supposed to go there there are a couple of ways that you can get to the archive um, you can access it through clubhouse um, if you were to for example scroll to the top of your screen and click on the greenhouse called science society if you scroll down a little bit there's a section called replays and you can see all of the different um, recordings that we've done with all of our speakers uh, you'll it takes about five minutes or so from the end of the recording for that mm -hmm. to be uploaded so uh -huh. if you wanted to share it very quickly, you could do it that way. Um, there's also, we have a YouTube channel and Spotify, Ooh, Spotify, <laughs> uh, and all oh, of that my is accessible gosh. This to is our, on Spotify too. Yeah, all of this is accessible on our website. If you go to the website, um, there's a, you can see where all of our different, um, sharing mediums are. We have a YouTube channel as well. So we're, 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 we're well diversified in terms of, uh, options to review the recordings and and enjoy the the previous conversations that we've had and i've just followed you there just now doctor and uh i'm jamie and i'm sure katharina's followed you and a few other people i'm sure will as well and that means that there'll be people that if you're in the app and want to like message someone with any kind of questions when you're just here casually you can completely reach out it's a very very friendly environment Okay, sounds okay. good. Thank you. Yeah, I think we can slowly start. Um, a few more people arrive, <clears throat> and then we can. Um, yeah, I, people, more people will arrive, but I, I think it's fine. So, welcome everyone to the Science Society, and we have a very amazing guest speaker here today. <laughs> we'll talk about her wonderful work, uh, and she got actually. Uh, uh, Washington Research Foundation Award for um, for the development of the novo protein technology. Um, so that's exciting. Congratulations for that. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. So um, just to um, give you a little bit of um, background information, um, our um, yeah, our guest speaker is not just a scientist, but also she was a surgeon combat engineer, first 
for surgeon. Um, uh, oh my god, you defense. really did me up. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I try when you take the time to come here, I should at least, you know, know something. <laughs> it's like, so that's that's impressive. I'm so impressed by that. Um, and she designed and implemented combat ready training courses and prepared uh, soldiers for intensive exercise and so on. And S Serena here, that is part of our moderators, she's also in like defense um, research. So um, there we have something in common. Like um, she graduated um, uh, from, um, uh, from uh, the university in Haifa, uh, Israel, and um, she did there also her uh, research research assistant. She did, she was a research assistant there too, and um, then um, later she was um, at the Israel Institute of Technology Technion, um, and then she did her postdoc um, at C in Seattle um, uh, under the with her advisor Professor Hanil. Ruhola Baker at the Department of Biochemistry and Institute of Stem Cell um, and Regenerative Medicine. And um, she um, then uh, went to the University of Washington, where she is now. And there she is also an acting instructor and a researcher. And uh, she continues working in stem cell and uh, development and regeneration. Um, and yeah, and as I said, she won this amazing award from the Washington Research Foundation. Um, and, uh, yeah, so we are very honored having you here, such an amazing person. And, um, yeah, the stage is yours. Usually somebody like Denise, maybe today, uh, ask you about, uh, like a more general question in the beginning, if that's okay to know you a little Of course. Bit. Okay, great. And then the stage is yours for your research. Okay. Thank you so much for the introduction. That was a great intro. Yeah. Thanks so much for, for joining us, Dr. Levy. Um, we like to ask a question here as scientists. What, what, what was the pathway to you becoming a professional scientist? What was the first step in your journey? Can you remember how, how you uh, found your way into where you are right now? Because we have a lot of young scientists and it helps to understand the path of people who have already walked it so that they may also do it perhaps. Yeah, that is an excellent question. And I think uh, well deserved to ask too. Um, I hate to say it, I didn't choose science, science chose me. That's a great answer. <laughs> <laughs> I, I really, I really, when I was a little kid, I wanted to be a physician. Um, but, you know, after, after I finished my service and between that and taking all the SATs and all those, all those exams, I, I failed miserably. And but I did love the science and, and those tests really didn't do a lot of justice with me. So I stuck with science and it was the moment in 
after I finished my master's degree, when I was at the Technion in Haifa, and I started my PhD, I went through a terrible experience in science in terms of the project doesn't work, my hypothesis was wrong, I had to close the project, it was such a tragedy. But I also learned how to be resilient and I came up with new idea and I kind of pivot from didn't work and came up with new experiments and new research model and new hypothesis of how to understand life sciences better. And that is when I fell in love with biology and science. And I hate to say it, it, ha it had to come with a lot of pain, but, but I, I cannot sell you a nice Cinderella story, <laughs> but this is my story. It came from a lot of pain and now I completely fell in love with, with science and biology and, and, you know, my five cents for young scientists is, is to never, ever, ever uh, back down to a challenge. You know, that we, we come up with hypotheses and many times we'll have to prove them wrong. And the way to go is just to, to ask different questions. Uh, and that, that's, that's, that's how I started the sciences. So if you want, I'll continue and tell you what I've done in my PhD and how I've rolled into my postdoc. Yes, if you yeah. if you'd like to tell us, please. Yeah, in my in my PhD, I was working on an archaea that uh, was a ribonuclease, and uh, I identified that in my master's degree. Later on in my PhD, I found a similar um a family of proteins in human mitochondria and and that was super novel and i thought it's the coolest thing in the world um so i i also characterized that protein in human mitochondria so i really always worked on regulation and gene expression and control of gene expression in the mammalian system um and and I tackled through my master's and my PhD, I tackled all that from the RNA level and I studied proteins that degrade RNA. And when I came to Seattle uh, to complete my postdoc, I was fortunate to work for and understand control of gene expression from completely different angle and that the angle of epigenetics and regulating gene expression through methylation marks. And I'm going to tell you about that today. So, so overall, I studied a lot of control of gene expression from two different angles in, in my younger life from the RNA angle and now from the chromatine nucleosome uh, epigenetic level. So if that uh, if if we're ready to to start, I'm I'm happy to start. Yes, yes. Let's transition, please. Uh, please begin. All right. Let me just make sure I don't hear. 
my kids screaming. <laughs> oh, it's One fine. Second. All the time, you people are just <laughs> okay. So, I'm gonna start by saying good night to all the night owls uh, that are here tonight with us. I know you guys are, I'm not sure, but you guys are based in New York. It's already 9 15. Uh, it's, it's late afternoon for me, so it's so a way to go. All those night owl scientists, and thank you for having me. As Katarina said before, my name is Shiri Levy. I'm an acting instructor at the University of Washington, and I am part of the biochemistry department and the Institute for Stem Cell and Regenerative Medicine. Just saying all this and just going back to my previous life, the fun fact is that when I was in 10th grade, I, I had a miserable attempt to be a DJ on the radio. And th this whole scenario right now brings me back to being a DJ on the radio. And all I want is to have a whole panel of cool voices <laughs> and tunes to kind of like do the drum rolls and all that. So that's a... Uh, what's, your, what's your DJ name? Did you, do you have one? <laughs> DJ uh, Cascine? No, uh, <laughs> I wish <laughs> that would be cool. <laughs> DJ Cast Nine, we should we should definitely start that now. <laughs> you heard it here first, folks. That, it's that should be a thing. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> I love it. Uh, well, tonight I'm excited to share with you how we use novel design proteins to unravel epigenetics and control gene expression in precise loci. And I will talk about the paper that I recently published in Cell Reports. And the title for this paper is Cats 9 Fusion to Computer Design PRC2 Inhibitor Reveals Functional Tatabox in Distal Promoter Region. Um, Katarina, I, is the paper available for people? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's up. Okay, great. Yep. Awesome. So I will break down my talk uh, to introduction and mechanism, uh, and the mechanism will include figures one to four, and I'll try to, I have the paper open on my computer, so I'll try to refer to the figure as I go along. And then I'll talk about application of the technology in figure five and six. And, and all together, if you guys have questions and want to jump and be like, hey, what does novel design protein mean? Hey, what epigenetic means? I'm happy to, to take a pause and, and just um, explain uh, uh, the vocab as we go along. So I'd yes, like please. to say... Mm -hmm. Alex, did you say something? No, go ahead. Go ahead. Like to say and try to relate every time I start my talk about something that happened to us all the time. So every cell in our body have the same DNA. And if you go through and close your eyes for one second and think about all your organs and all your tissues and all the cells inside those organs and tissue, every single cell in your body has the same DNA. 
And our DNA is two meter long, about three billion base pairs. However, having said all that, what makes our cells functionally different is epigenetic regulation. And just this fact alone is, to me, mind-blowing. We have brain cells and skin cells and kidney cells, and they all, all of them behave so differently, and they all express different genes, yet they all have the same DNA. So when I wake up in the morning, I ask myself, how come a brain cell behave like a brain cell and a kidney cell behave like a kidney cell? And what, what is that in epigenetic regulation that allow and a kidney cell to act so differently. So, but, but, and this is just how normal biology works, but defects in epigenetic regulations are pathological. They affect our immunity, they generate cancer, and they make us age faster. Now, who wants to age faster? No one. So that's, that alone is a really good reason to study epigenetics. The technology I worked on for the first time allowed studying epigenetic regulation at a precise loci, and three biological revolutions really allowed it. The first biological revolution is the computationally designed protein. The second biological revolution is the CRISPR-Cas9 system, and the third one is the, is the biological revolution of induced pluripotent stem cells. So what's, what's true for all epigenetic cells is one complex that um, trail us through evolution, and this is the polycomb family. The polycomb family, or what we call the polycomb repressive complex 2, which is also known as PRC2. So many times in the talk, I might refer to the PRC2, but this is just a jazz of proteins cluttered together to repress a gene. And the way they do this, those proteins, they, they work in, in cahoots, but the the Active protein, which called the methyltransferase, is called EZH2. And this methylase, EZH2, binds to another molecule, another protein, named EED. And once this EZH2 protein binds to EED, it can now methylate promoter regions on a gene to silence and repress those genes. So if you, a biologist, or you ever looked at CHIP-seq data, uh, there is a region of, of the gene, and on top of it, it looked like mountains of marks. Those are methylation marks. And they cover the, 
whole promoter region on a gene. And the methylation marks I'm referring to are repressive. They close down the gene. They close the chromatin in a way that RNA polymerase 2 will not be able to move in transcribe the message. So the PRC2 is an epigenetic repressor. And you can, you can think why it's so important if we look at stem cells or if we look at brain cells or kidney cells, we would have to have that will silence block those genes that need to be expressed by those uh, uh, cells and, and tissue and organs. Does that make sense? Everything that I said so far? Yes, yes, it's perfect. Sometimes you right. kind of um, like, um, are you moving maybe sometimes? away from the microphone or is it just me maybe it's my connection like in between it's not your... just you there, there's um, yeah. we're we're we're, <laughs> we're losing you here and there for a couple of seconds if there's any way to maybe adjust your microphone or your position to go you have to be the router or where there's a better signal you have to I'm be next to the precise holding <laughs> maybe do you have noise cancelling headphones I do actually. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it happened the same to me. They are they don't work well with uh, with Clubhouse. So no headset do. What? Yeah. So wait, do you want me to switch to the head the noise canceling headphones? No, no, not noise canceling headphones. Oh, you oh, you're yeah. using them. Okay. Well, no, right I'm now we can them. hear you fine. Yeah, just okay. now you sound just great. Uh, yeah. Uh, but by the way, uh, Dr. Levy was, uh, I mean, so far so, so great. And I just wanted to quickly to uh, get the, you know, take home uh, 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 learnings that you mentioned three uh, important advancement. Uh, one is the computational, the other, uh, the second is uh, CRISPR-Cas9. Now, what, what is, can you repeat what is the third one that I think In, I missed? I, I call it IPSE, induced pluripotent stem cells. Got it. Thank you. So, said PRC2 involved in cell fate determination and developmental transition, and the methyl transferase EZH2 bind to EED uh, to methylate uh, histone 3 lysine 27 to block and repress all those developmental genes. And <clears throat> until now, even now, for us scientists, when we look at called histone 3, lysine 27, uh, and three methyl marks, in short, we say H3K27 trimethylation, usually on a gene, we would see long, wide breaths of this mark in the promoter region of a gene. And until now, to get rid of those marks, you take a chemical drug and erase all these marks from a gene. And that was until now. And what 
we've done is say, okay. It's, it's, it's actually getting worse. You, yeah, uh, the, the, the beginning the, of your sentence is muffled. Uh, okay, let me see. Maybe I should just be on my Wi-Fi. Hang on. So, so the key is to not move around that much and uh, to find an orientation of the phone that best uh, best picks up your voice and then hold it there, almost NASA precise. But <laughs> just just know that Wi-Fi dead spots are about a foot, so okay, if you step I, over a foot left to the right, that might help as well. I am now down the Wi-Fi, so I should be only on my phone, and that should work. Is that working now? Yeah, right now you're fine. I'll I'll let you know. I'm so sorry. <laughs> oh, that's okay. I the truth is that it's a little stormy here in Seattle, so I'm not surprised. But I I'm gonna try and pause if I can. Right now you sound you sound fine. Like okay, good. Okay. So what I was saying that we have these broad K27 trimethylation and until now in order to get rid of them get rid of the repressive mark would mean that we'll turn the gene on and upregulate it and activate it and in order, to, the only way to do it so far was to use chemical drugs. And what we're trying to do is stay away from drugs and, and chemical drugs. And the way to do that was to collaborate with the Institute for Protein Design and design a protein that will block interaction between EED and EZH2 and by that activate and activate those genes. Notice that I'm not talking about precision at all and right now I'm just introducing to you the work that we've done um, now five years ago and that was published in PNAS and characterized a novel gene that is really made from scratch using a computer and AI, artificial intelligence, in order to produce a new protein that is better and greater from nature and that will allow us to block the interaction between EED and EZH2. And we called it the EED binder. Am I am I clear until now? Is the connection better? Yeah, like on my side is better now. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. So this binder, this protein binder, mimics EZH2 binding site to EED, but unlike endogenous EZH2. It binds to EED with much greater affinity and function as a biological inhibitor. So we designed a protein from scratch and back in the day. So that was five years ago. It took two years. Now it takes six months 
to come up with a new design that is completely brand new um, and to have this protein to function as a binder and a protein inhibitor. Uh, we also made a negative control protein that has two amino acid mutation and that will not bind to EED. So in our PNAS 2017 publication, we characterize the novel design PRC2 inhibitor that is also called EED binder. And what we really learned about the, the role of PRC2 in human embryonic stem cells, and, and you can learn more about it if you'll just Google, I think, the EED binder, and I can put it on the chat later too. Overall, the take-home message from, from that work was that um, human embryonic stem cells that were induced with the ED binder lost their stem cell morphology, but not the negative control. A pull-down pull assay validated, validated the binding of the ED binder to EED, but not the negative control using mass spec. An immunoblot, which is Western analysis, showed that reduction showed the reduction of global A3K27 trimethylation marks, as well as the PRC2 components, GARI2 and EZH2. And the RNA seq of this of this uh, induction of this EED binder confirmed the higher expression of differentiation genes and lower expression of the stem cell genes. And finally, CHIP-seq analysis of A3K27 showed the global reduction in A3K27 trimethylation with the EED binder compared to the cells that were not transfected with the binder. So we concluded that embryonic stem cells needed in order to maintain their stemness. And so to summarize it, we also proved that the novel design protein, the EED binder, reduce A3K27 marks globally. So now, I told you before that in order to erase all the marks, you would use chemical drug, and now use design protein, the ED binder that is made from scratch. So global is great, but local even better. And the, and the better and greater things that we could have done now and think of perfection and a precision was to fuse this computer design PRC2 inhibitor, which I called the ED binder, to catalytically dead Cas9. So as you know, CRISPR-Cas9 is the new gene editing tool. Uh, Cas9 that is not catalytic, catalytically dead uh, will like a scissors and will be able to make cuts and editing using guide RNA. Uh, we use dead Cas9 that basically served just like an uber, uh, I'd like to say to non-scientists. 
So it just a vehicle to deliver the cargo and our cargo is this novel design protein, the EED binder. So we had two goals in mind. The first one, compress specific site on the, on the gene, and by that activate or upregulate only one gene at a time by removing A3K27 marks at precise loci. And the other thing that we wanted to do is to study which A3K27 trimethylation marks are functionally necessary for gene activation. So we wanted to now not upregulate only genes. We wanted to upregulate one gene and selected genes. What if we wanted to upregulate only one or five or 10 genes? We now will be able to do it with the catalytically dead Cas9. And so that's the one thing we wanted to know. The second thing we wanted to know is can we find the sweet spot that is responsible for gene repression? And, and the way to do it was with the tool that, that we've created. So the, if you go to figure 1A, you can see the cartoon and you can see that normally PRC2 um, repressing um, specific genes and when we fuse EB with dead Cas9 and together with guide RNA, we're able to upregulate specific genes. That was the hypothesis and, and that was the working model. In stem cells, we usually um, uh, generate stable line after um, making re recombinant homology of the construct to the AVS1 locus. And you can see that figure B really describes the, the TET on promoter construct, the EB, which is fused with the linker to that Cas9 and the M cherry. And then you can see the induced pluripotent stem cells. And once we turn on this gene, this ED binder, dead Cas9 gene with doxycycline, now the cells are red. This is true for the ED binder and true for the negative control. Um, uh, what you can also see that when we now induce the cells with this ED binder, there are no global downregulation of EZH2 or K27. And uh, while now we see Cas9 expression, the cells are not, uh, are not downregulating EZH2 or A3K27 in a global level, meaning that um, these, these cells are able to keep their stemness. So normally in order to really understand which marks are important for repression, we tile the promoter region of specific gene. And in figure 1E, you can see how we tile the promoter region. There is guide um, layout from guide one through guide eight. 
and some of them are closer to the transcription start site, TSS, some of them are closer away. And now when we do what I called a cocktail transfection with a whole bunch of guides, uh, we can see that the FAR guides, guides one through eight, uh, had very minimal effects. So that's the black bars on the transcription of TBX18 gene. TBX18 is a bivalent gene. Uh, it means that it has uh, both H3K27 marks, and, uh, which are repressive marks, and activation marks um, uh, on, uh, on the gene. And TBX18 is also a sinoatrial markers. The sinoatrial node cells are cells that responsible for um, the, the pacemaking in the heart. And those are one of the first cells um, that are being produced in differentiation in the embryo. And, and as I said before, they, they determine the, the pace uh, of the heart. Um, when we look at guides uh, three, two, three, six, four, and five, we see that now we have a better upregulation of TBX18. So we already had a sense of where the good guides would lay. So when we when I transfected the same cells, uh, those induced propotent stem cells, now with individual guides, now we saw much much greater effect of TBX18 upregulation, and you can see guide five and guide six, which are approximately a thousand base pairs away from TSS had about 50 to 60 fold increase in TBX18 regulation. To prove that those cells um, didn't uh, upregulate TBX18 because of differentiation, we looked at the stem cell marker OCT4, and you can see that non-significantly it, it uh, goes down. We also um, uh, see through uh, immunofluorescence, and this is figure I, that the OCT4 is not damaged and TBX18 is upregulating compared to the no guide. So this was kind of like the first proof of concept. And what we've learned is that, yes, we can upregulate gene expression only by directing uh, one guide to one locus. But why? What's so special about guide six? Why is it so important? Uh, what was so important about guide six region? And this is when we dove into the mechanism of is so important about guide six region that really the moment you open that site up now the tbx18 can now be upregulated so in order to study what happened in the epigenetic point of view i use qpcr 
So for those of you that are not familiar with Chipkey PCR, what we do um, after um, we harvest the experiment, we fix the cells and quench them, and we pull down um, the chromatin with uh, different antibodies. And here in this experiment, we use the Cas9 antibody uh, EZH2 and A3K27. And what we've learned is, so um, right now I'm in figure two panel B. What we've learned is that the black, mar the black bars are the EB dead cast line. And what you can see is that at the mRNA level, we have uh, upregulation of dead cast line and TBX18. This is true for the negative control for dead cast line but not true for, for TBX18, and there is no upregulation there. And so we proved once again that we're able to upregulate TBX18 at the mRNA level, but, uh, but what we wanted to know is to understand what happened at the epigenetic level, and for that we used ChIP-QPCR. At the ChIP-QPCR level, we learned that both the ED binder and the negative control are recruited to the, the site uh, of, the, of the nucleosome of the chromatin of where we target the guide RNA. However, when we looked at the ZH2 and A3K27, we see reduction in uh, EBDET Cas9 in those sites, uh, but not for the negative control. So that was a great concept of just. Um, happen inside uh, the cells in at the chromatin level and learning that we were able to downregulate EZH2 and A3K27 at that site. And basically that would contribute to the TBX18 upregulation that you can that you see on the left. Uh, panel D and E really showed that to target uh, different guides. So this is guide seven, which is really far away. You can see it's 3,000 base pairs away from TSS. And we didn't see any mRNA upregulation for this guide seven, probably because it was too far away uh, from TSS. But uh, we were still able to um, look at the epigenetic level and see that epigenetic wise, uh, things uh, kind of stay the same. So, and EBDET Cas9 was recruited to the, to the guided area. And EZH2 and A3K27 at that site were reduced. So, so that just enhanced the question, why Guide 6 was so successful in upregulating TBX18 when, uh, except from Guide 5, no guide was able to do the same job. So before I jumped into the, the wow of this work, um, this is a mini, I call it a mini uh, epigenetic memory assay. And we kept the cells, we transfected the cells and then kept the cells growing at least for a three cells division. And we repeated this experiment, and at five days, we call that epigenetic memory. 
And what we saw that the transcript is keep being upregulated at day five. And then when we look at the epigenetic work, um, EGH2 and K27 trimethylation marks are, are still reduced and uh, EBDET-Cas9 at day five is no longer there, showing that there is some epigenetic memory effect and the cells are inheriting um, uh, the remodeling of the marks of, of that specific region. So, so far, I, I tried to convince you that we were able to remodel the epigenetic marks at, at specific sites. But in figure three, we kind of like starting to look at the neighborhood around that site and ask, okay, that's great that we've learned that, um, that we can remodel specific sites, but what happened when we go towards CSS and we looked at different uh, sites uh, of the epigenome and we could see that uh, for EBDET-Cas9, only at three days there was recruitment to the site um, uh, and that was very specific. Uh, but when we look at EZH2 and A3K27, so this is uh, figure three panel B and C, we can see a reduction of uh, EZH2 and A3K27, both at three days and five days, going towards transcription start site, meaning that the, uh, the chromatin is, is getting much more relaxed and much more euchromatin compared to heterochromatin, which is a, it's closed tight uh, chromatin. So now the, the more relaxed chromatin uh, allows RNA polymerase to, to come in and transcribe TBX18 message. Uh, the, when we look at the other PRC2 components such as EED, we could see that uh, that uh, guide six, for example, stain put, but uh, this ED is sharply decreasing. This is panel D in figure three, um, going towards CSS as well as uh, Jerry two, um, which is another protein uh, from the PRC two complex. So so far we looked at. Um, Cas9 and e, in EZH2 and A3K27, but but we also asked, what are those activation marks? Are do we can we validate everything that we see from the repression marks with activation marks? And when we looked at A3K27 acetylations and P300, which is the enzyme that put those acetyl marks for activation marks. Uh, are recruited to that same site. And uh, this was true uh, also for RNA polymerase two when, when we looked at day three and day five. And then when we looked at the transcript that's being made, we saw that, the, that th those, there are um, uh, five prime UTR transcripts that are beginning to be transcribed um, from the area of where we de-repressing 
the the specific nucleosome. One of the one of the things uh, that uh, was super exciting to see uh, was that when we looked at uh, methylation marks now, um, specifically the marks that are very close to uh, the transcription start site, uh, the methyl marks gain hydroxyl um, methyl cytosine marks, and those um, uh, 5-HMC are now, um, compared to control, are now upregulated when we transfected TBX18 and GUIDE6. So overall, we, we could see that TBX18 is now showing up or and this is why we see the transcription. The, the repressive marks are going down, the activation marks are going up, as well as the uh, methylation marks and hydroxymethylation marks that are now uh, are preparing to being removed. So I kept pitching you the question, why GUIDE6 is so important? What's so important in, GAUT, in GUIDE 6 region that made it uh, such a great hub for creating the X18 gene? And when we looked at transcriptional elements, um, once again, let me pause just once again. When we looked at transcriptional elements, we came up with all kinds of ideas and we looked at transcription factor binding sites. We looked at GC rich regions. Uh, we looked at few uh, quadruplexes that are unique in architecture in that site. And none of those ideas were good. The one idea that uh, came up uh, that we thought of exploring more and more was a prediction of a TATA box. So as, as you know, TATA boxes are really the initiators for transcription. This is where RNA polymerase see a sequence of TATA and start transcribing the message. And right next to this guide six, mind you, it's 1,000 base pairs away from TSS. Normal TATA boxes are about 30 base pairs of transcription start site. And what we've learned that uh, right next to guide six, there is a TATA box, which is, um, I can't remember exactly how many base pairs away, but dozens of, of base pairs away from, from guide six. And we said, could it be, could it be that we sent EBDET-Cas9 to a specific site on the genome and it now derepressed the six site and now those methylation marks are removed and now we've exposed the box. And now RNA polymerase 2 is able to read this data box and transcribe the message. So in order to prove this hypothesis, what we've done is if you can see those uh, sequencing um, file here in, in figure 4B, 
we said, okay, if we think that we, that Tatabox is responsible for all this, let's remove this Tatabox. And we did CRISPR-Cas9. We used CRISPR-Cas9 to really make a, an incision and really remove this whole Tatabox out of CBX18 promoter region. And we made two clones, we called it TataBox Clone 1 and TataBox Deleted Clone 2. And uh, in panel C, you can see that uh, the line of EBDET-Cas9 maintained and we were able to maintain EBDET-Cas9 expression. Unlike TataBox 1 and TataBox Deletion 2, uh, when we upregulated uh, CBX18, only the wild type was able to upregulate TBX18, but the cell lines where Tatabox was deleted was unable to upregulate TBX18 message. So to understand what exactly is going on, we ran a cheap qPCR and we started to pull down EBDET-Cas9 and EZH2 and we saw that both EBDET-Cas9 and EZH2, both for wild type and the Tato deleted clones uh, had recruitment of EBDET-Cas9 and showed reduction of EZH2. But this is, I think, the, the, the biggest wow for me of, of this paper. We were able to now look at Tata binding protein Tata binding protein is a protein that bind and lead RNA polymerase to come in and transcribe the message. And what we've learned is the wild type was able to recruit this Tata binding protein. So the wild type has a Tata box, the Tata binding protein will bind to Tata. However, the moment we deleted this Tata box, Tata binding protein was not able to find the Tata box and could not be recruited to TBX18 promoter region. And, and that's the moment when I've learned that this is exactly the reason why guide six is so important. So if we look at the model in figure 4F, you can see that normally PRC2 and guide six are covering the Tata box region uh, which is far away from TSS. And the moment uh, we bring in EBDET-Cas9, EZH2 is lifted, the A3K27 trimethylation marks are lifted, P300 uh, is now uh, adding acetyl marks to the histone. Um, you can see that is now this Tata box is exposed and uh, um, RNA polymerase together with Tata binding protein and other Tata factors are able to come in and transcribe TBX18 uh, message. And, and to me, that was so great understanding the mechanism of how we can utilize uh, EBDET-Cas9 in understanding some of the elements that we didn't even know that where exist and and now we have a tool and technology to explore all that so that was super cool and that's that's uh one angle of this story 
Katrina, I see that it's already 7 p.m. Do you want me to continue or do you want me to pause? Uh, it's it's up to you. You can continue. I think we are fine. But okay, I'll be super tired. crazy now. <laughs> yeah, okay, don't... I'll be super fast. Yeah. Um, so so far, try to convince you that we understand the mechanism of how this EBDET Cas9 works, but. Since we're looking at one day therapeutics and one day making precision medicine better and greater, we thought how we can utilize this tool and, and understand if we can make some difference in therapeutics. Um, so now we target a different gene that is called P16. P16 is a cell cycle regulator. It's, it's the I think the name, what is, the name of the gene is CDKN2A. It's an inhibitor for uh, cyclin-dependent kinase. And what P16 is doing is putting a break on cell cycle. And in many cancers, uh, P16 is considered as a tumor as a tumor suppressor. And in many cancer. P16 is highly, highly upregulated with H3K27 trimethylation mod, meaning that it's being repressed and it's being silenced. And what we need to do is really awaken this P16 because since it's responsible to put a break on cell cycle, and now that cell cycle is being, si the, the break is now being silenced, the cells are keep dividing and dividing and dividing. There is nothing to stop them. So what we've done is again, tile the promoter region of P16 uh, with different guide RNA. This these, um, promoter region was more permissive than TBX18. And what we very quickly learned that not only we can upregulate P16 using EBDET Cas9, uh, but also the cell viability of uh, of uh, the human embryonic stem cells that we were working on uh, are now being compromised and the cells are unable to divide because now we've upregulated uh, the the break and we put a break on on cell cycle control. So again, we we proved that we're able, um, mechanistically remodel the epigenetic region of P16 in sp specific guide. Uh, the supplemental also uh, showed that we work with diffuse intrinsic um, potine glioma. Those, those are very aggressive um, cancer cells um, of kids with um, glioblastomas. And what we showed is that we are able to deliver EBDET Cas9 to those cells and with guide RNA are able to upregulate P16 and really block cell cycle. So that's one way how we can use this tool. The other way is to use EBDET Cas9 in the stem cell niche and try to now differentiate or trans-differentiate 
stem cells into different cell type. So anytime in nature, when you go reverse of the differentiation dogma, we call it trans differentiation. And if you look at figure six, you can see that we start from induced human pluripotent stem cells and we were able to take EBDAD-Cas9 and challenge the question, can we now trans-differentiate induced pluripotent stem cells to trophoblast cells? So trophoblast cells are cells that make the placenta uh, and create placenta progenitor cells only by epigenetic remodeling. So this time we've made a cocktail of uh, those two transcription factors and we target uh, guides um, uh, from either GATA3 or CDX2, which are both transcription factors. And this cocktail taught us that specific guides in specific combination are now can now upregulate those transcription factors. So both CDX2 and GATA3 were able to be upregulated, while CDX3, which is a, a marker for placenta progenitor cells, was upregulating too. The RNA seq that um, we performed on these cells showed that both guide one and guide five, so guide one was better than guide five, were able to get closer to the placental stage compared to the no guide control. And the coolest thing about this, that we were able to, and this is a cartoon L, we were able to take induced pluripotent stem cell, now transfected with transcription factors, and at, after three days, those cells were now primed to become placental progenitor cells. And we continued this differentiation with either forskolin to make uh, syncytotrophoblasts, so those are multi-nucleated uh, cells, or with TGF-beta inhibitor and neurodulin to make extra villus trophoblasts. So those cells are the cells that will latch into the uterian wall and, and be the connective tissue between placenta and the uterian wall. And we were able to show that cells that were upregulated with that specific guide were able to successfully differentiate into those very specialized progenitor-like placenta cells. Um, and, and normally you achieve all that with throwing a whole bunch of factors and regulators uh, to take one cell type and, and make another, but, but we kind of use a very organic and holistic way to uh, upregulate uh, only specific genes, and in this case, two genes uh, that will uh, give us the same result, the same result that is, uh, in my opinion, is much cleaner than um, upregulating thousands and hundreds uh, different genes in the cells that may have off-target effects. 
So, um, I think I, th that was the paper. Um, uh, the, I, I have to give credits to um, the incredible people that did the work with me. And this is Logesh and Infancia and uh, Diego and, and Sven. And of course, my mentor, Hall or Hall Baker um that that put this work so nicely together uh if you'll go to the abstract and the graphical abstract you'll now see that you're able to that we that we summarize this um by really taking the prc2 creating a, a novel design uh binder that is fused to dead cast nine and now we can specifically tile specific genes and uh, and hopefully advance therapeutics one day so thank you so much for listening um be more than happy to take questions yeah thank you so much for this great explanation it's wonderful uh i saw eli yeah so um this will probably be easy for you to dispense with but i think it's worth asking um you're talking, you're, one of the things that you found was the distant Tata box. Um, I'm wondering if you looked at its 3D proximity uh, when the DNA is wrapped around nucleosomes. That is an excellent, excellent question. I've never gotten this question before. Um, no, I did not look at the 3D of the Tata box and where it's located in the nucleosome. I'm sure that there is prediction uh sites that uh, uh can pr predict the rotation of the tata box on the nucleosome um uh, uh all i know that it was probably in a convenient place for the eb cast line to come in and and remodel it the way it did so i'm 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 not allowed to flat um so the as you make the most so the Kirko, you're you're it's very hard to hear you. Sorry. Are you good? Uh can you hear me better now? Marginally. Let's try it again. Can you hear me better now? Way better, yes. Okay, okay. Uh so the E B is the protein that you guys made with the computer. And are you using Cas9 to deliver the E B to the specific site that you want it to get to? Or is Correct. that? Okay, okay. And this EB, is it, it was specifically made to bind or is it specific to a specific place? You know what I'm saying? Like. Oh, yes, yes. No, the EB was specifically to bind the EED. Oh, okay, I'm tracking, I'm tracking. The the EB stands for EED binder, and it's completely designed to stick and bind to EED. So, what, just out of curiosity, what made you guys? Uh, what, what was the determining factor for this? Is the protein you want it to be stuck to? Ah, very good question. In, if you look across many cancer patients, uh, what you see that the, many of them 
have um, overuse of EZH2, and that's the protein that normally binds to EED. And there are many drugs now that targeting EZH2, and that was that was just a smart decision. What would be the next phase of therapeutics? So reason why we went after EZH2 EED is because it's such it's it's such a protein that abundance in cancer. Awesome. Thank you. Dr. Shah, you had a question? Yes. So good evening, Shiri from Seattle. So my question is about as a part in a part of the paper you just mentioned about the uh, gene expression based epigenomic memory and how you just reach out to this goal. And I was just wondering because we know that about the distinct gene expression pattern uh, and it's related to this epi epigenetic cell memory and absolutely transcription factors, they can be involved. I was just wondering, did you find any evidence about autoregulation or I mean activity of the, I mean chromatin? or I mean histone modification or such information? Really great question. And if I, and now that I'm really continuing this re research, um, this is exactly what we're looking at. We're looking at what other proteins are recruited to that site? What other epigenetic modifiers are now are changing because because of the remodeling that we've, we uh, just forced the cell to go to. So uh, these are really good questions and I don't have answer to them yet beyond what I've shown in the paper, but I'm very curious, uh, just as you said, to learn about the 3D architecture of the chromatin, to learn what other recruiters Writers, erasers, readers are um, uh, are coming into that specific site after we removing H3K27 trimethylation. Really good question. Thank you. Thank you too. I had a question. Uh, um, I want to uh, first, you know, highlight or or just. Um, make sure I, I get it right but 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 yeah no the work is is fascinating in the sense that you've you have the de novo design protein that allows you to selectively um, first dis discover uh, the regions where you can control expression of a particular gene and it seems that when you find these distal regions the much much farther than uh, contemporary techniques that seems significant I also have a um, a fascination with trying to uh, interpret the three-dimensional structure, and I was wondering if to sort of to turn that question around. When we when we find a relationship, very distal relationship in sequence from um, the ac activation region and the expression of a gene, does that actually tell us something about the structure, or 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 the um, you know, or how is that that um, could be, you know, some other factor going on, but does that actually tell us that, you know, these are spatially 
uh, proximal, even though they're yeah. very distant in sequence space. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And very unfortunately, still today at 2022, and I, I really hope very soon I'll be wrong, it's really so hard to find techniques that will allow us to um, understand the 3D architecture of the chromatin. So the available uh, 3D structure that uh, we can use right now are high C. And high C's are true for mega basters long. Um, I'm hoping that this will become very high resolution where we can look at 2000 base per region and a 500 base per region and understand the loops uh, of the chromatins and the nucleosome orientation in order to understand why um, genes are being expressed the way they do. That's a, that's a really good. Yeah, could I, could, could just, I rip on that a little bit? Um, if, if I could, this is John. Um, I, I think this is one of the most underappreciated aspects of the genetic code is that the tertiary and quaternary structures of the DNA folding are critical. So if you look at long repeated sequences that, that are, you know, quote unquote nonsense, we, ha we have to understand that some of those will be critical structures to ensure the approximation of um, the gene itself with uh, all of the various types of um, influences on that gene, that the approximation of those two in three-dimensional space is subject to mutation. So mutations in dark DNA that affect um, the expression of a gene in some circumstances, not all, but in some circumstances are invariably going to be proven to be how they changed the, the um, uh, molecular proximity of those two different species on the same strand of DNA. And we're going to, to uh, find that particularly, in, unless you do really, really deep, you know, some of the most difficult domains to sequence in DNA is where they're locked in a in a quaternary folding structure that doesn't lend itself to continuous reads. And so um, what you just described, um, I believe is gonna be a gold mine for understanding uh, what has remained fairly mysterious in, in the, the dark uh, DNA. Thank you, John. Do you, does that make sense to you? Well, yeah, and I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, I'm uh, I'm assuming that you, the gold mine that you're referring to is really the understanding high C and having a high resolution of of the chromatin folding. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, I agree with you. Yes, and I I hope that the techniques will become greater and better. And right now, I think it's only CTCF uh, pull down that allow understanding high C. Um, I really hope this will get in much better resolution than what it is right now. Well, I wonder if there's approaches to um, 
attach fluorescent labels, for example, to um, the, the safe, safer your, you know, your design proteins and, you know, regions of the actual expression and perhaps detect, uh, you know, proximity through resonance transfer, uh, those type of techniques. So you, you could confirm that there's, a, you know, a proximity there spatially. Um, that's one thought. I, I, another thought that, you know, I, I, when I hear about methylation, particularly trinary methylation, turning a primary amine into a quaternary salt, um, is, it, is it known whether that alters the, the fold of, of chromatin or in some way uh, changes, you know, what's buried and what, what's exposed um, more profoundly than just blocking locally? you know, through either solubility, uh, buried surface area, that those type, you've changed the chemical properties quite a bit when you try methylated amine, uh, but that can also have uh, more profound effects on the, you know, the preferred uh, energetics of its environment. And I wonder if that's driving quaternary changes. I think that's a brilliant idea. And, and another way of thinking about it, um, which would probably yield complementary results, is the application of bispecific antibodies. So bispecific antibodies are used in therapeutics to, on uh, one of the binding sites, uh, bind a drug, and another binding site, bind the target. But in this case, you could consider the regulatory um, species as the drug and the gene as the target. And if you could find where bispecifics were localized when you have engineered them um, to uh, have a regulatory um, binding as well as a direct uh, genetic binding, it may be, and then you get fluorescent tag the, um, the bispecific um, at, at the base, that would be a really interesting probe to look indirectly um, at the hypothesis that distance in base pairs does not equate to distance in space. So there, there are a few techniques that um, uh, can be used um, in this regards. Um, I, I'll just mention CHIP, uh, the um, chromatin immunoprecipitation, uh, but a, a couple that are kind of interesting though, perhaps, well, one is, is, is really interesting, but it's probably not widely established and probably won't, won't be widely established. It's called a DNA nanoscope, and um, I forget the primary author, but uh, George Church um, is involved in it. And basically, there's, um, uh, they, they tag, um, tag things with um, either recognition proteins or aptamers, and they have a way of, um, of measuring how far the two things are by having uh, multiple pieces of DNA hybridize, uh, and then uh, they sequence it, and by how long the resulting sequences are, you get uh, basically a 3D uh, um, distance map. Um, now that's a little fanciful. It's it's neat. It's amazing that it works at all, actually. But um, uh, you know there are um, more uh, modern uh, light microscopy techniques like light sheet microscopy that uh, really can localize labels with uh, um, precision down to um, 
on the order of uh, well, well, well under a wavelength. Uh, excuse me, well, well under a quarter to wavelength. So um, I, I'm not throwing it up because I'm probably going to get it wrong, but it's just amazingly close. And there's actually a whole family of these um, um, high resolution uh, light microscopies that have come about in the last 10 years that uh, could probably be brought to bear. Yeah, the new director at the La Jolla Institute of Immunology, that's her specialty. And they have some amazing uh, technology they use precisely um, in that way. Sorry, guys. I don't, I'm not sure what happened, but I'm back. Right on. Right in time. I had a couple of questions. Great. I was wondering... Um, so you use Cas9 in this where, you know, we've dubbed you DJ Cas9. I bought the domain already. Can talk about that later. Just kidding. Um, I was curious why I didn't use Cas12, and also there's uh, great implications in terms of suppressing cancer in your work. So I was curious, do you see that happening in your lifetime, or is this a mission that the future generations are going to have to carry out? What do you think? Uh, so first, uh, Cas12 wasn't a thing uh, five years ago when I started working on it. Cas12 is definitely up and coming now uh, and getting more traction right now. So, and yes, the, the, one of the things that we're doing is um, moving the noble design proteins to other Cas's uh, and other dead Cas's. Um, yes, I see this happening in, in the next few years. I think that uh, CRISPR will become um, a therapeutic agent. Uh, it already is in, in some instances, and um, it's already being delivered to deliver. Um, I think this, this will become the next phase of therapeutics. Did yes, fantastic. I mean, there's certainly, um, and there's so many different applications of this, this type of science for, to improve human health. So yeah, definitely looking forward to the future in this regard. Thank you. Questions. Anyone else have questions? Pleasure mics. Oh, hi, uh, Dr. L uh, Levy. Uh, yeah, I have a quick question uh, on the uh, uh, the, the design of the protein, the the, the EB uh, the binder protein. Uh, do you know uh, 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 by chance that what software that they uh, is the uh, 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 back in the true. day? Yes, yeah. So back in the day, this is a collaboration with David Baker's lab. Uh, this was used uh, uh, using Rosetta, and now the uh, second or third generation of Rosetta is the Rosetta Fold. Um, and you can Google all that and get all the information about the design. Thank you. Um, yeah, I wanted to comment. Uh, we had um, that I think it's really interesting that you worked on placenta, um, you know, differentiating um, the stem cells into placenta cells because we had the guest speak on Friday 
that presented his work of ex utero um, development um, into E11.5, uh, but not until the end. And they said for this, they would have to create like an uh, artificial placenta or maybe grow a placenta. So <laughs> this is perfect. You should collaborate with them on this. <laughs> yeah, I need to look that up. Yeah, I can share it with you. He He's actually in Israel um, uh, working there at the Weizmann Institute. I don't know if you know it, but um, yeah, of course, anyway, yes, that, that's interesting. And yeah, this is such an amazing work, and I really think um, that just also the basic science that um, you figured out to get to this tool basically is amazing. Um, uh, I found especially fascinating the timing and the inheritance part of the. Um, of these mechanisms are really interesting. So how long um, does, did, did you ever try how long this inheritance um, says like how many, I guess, passages or how many generations um, did you try if it at some point um, doesn't get inherited anymore? So I did try up to 12 days. The problem that I ran into, and this is why I didn't publish it, is that the stem cells are no longer stem cells if you culture them for so long uh, without moving them on a plate. So I, I, I think it requires more work. Um, the most that I could do keeping the stem cells stem cells was uh, three days and three cell divisions, uh, which worked. Um, the 12 days showed um, continuous upregulation of the transcript, um, I, but I couldn't see epigenetic regulation, downregulation, um, and I, I don't even think that we ever harvest those cells, so I can't really speak to it. But, um, but the one main problem that we had was in what we, media we need to condition those cells in order to allow them to become what they want to become, and the only later... In, in my work, I've discovered that I could buy some, some kind of an, um, benign media that I can culture the cells. It's all tricky when you work on stem cells. I think that uh, if I would work on different cell type, it might be a little easier to study. Um, the stem cells just drift so easily if they're not kept in their media. Um, so that was some of the challenges studying epigenetic memory. So I was just wondering in day five or seven, did you, I mean, notice any kind of instability? I mean, happen. So at day five, the, my control cells were, were still stem cells. So I could compare the study group to stem cells. Um, on day seven, the cells had already drifted, so it, it's really hard to have a good reference once the cells are drifting. So I, I, I cut the experiment on day five.
But if I had to do it all over again, I would look at uh, a different media uh, that will just be perfect uh, to grow the stem cells and the study group. Um, or I would just work on cancer cells that always kept on the same media. It's always interesting because uh, when this, we get into the technicalities of things, um, like Katarina was mentioning earlier with the ex utero um, mice embryology, there was, they were at day 12 was where they're the limits of their experiment. And you're also speaking about uh, cutoffs and limitations. And so it's always interesting to hear those parallels and wonder, you know, how much further you need to push to get as far as you need to go. Yeah, science will do that to you. Yeah, um, and um, so uh, why I asked the question earlier was, I was thinking when you use this, let's say in therapy for anti-cancer, so um, you could um, use this to basically suppress uh, further cancer development, um, I guess. so. I was thinking, um, well, you basically stop them from being cancer cells, so so you don't need to care too much about the next generations, right? Am I am I right? So yeah, that's right. So I that's why it doesn't really matter. For for that for that specific gene, you would just terminate them. But if we were to look at different uh different cell types um uh, you know one thing that i can think of is for example beta cells and islet cells of the pancreas if we could take beta cells and now retrain them and reprogram them to produce insulin that would be something that you know would have an epigenetic memory necessity unlike the cancer cells that we just want to terminate yeah exactly um yeah that's why um and then can you so you can be also very precise on the temporal scale right you can be precise in theory with the loci but also when you want them to kick in or do you need to give the trigger drug basically? Um, you know, if we're talking therapeutics is completely different mm -hmm. ball game than <laughs> the work that I've done so far. <laughs> I don't think doxycycline is a thing to upregulate, uh, you know, gene expression when it comes to therapeutics. But um, I, I'm sure there is all kind of clever ideas of how to express genes in a therapeutic forms. Well, yeah, maybe we can use something. Maybe we can use something. But it's, I think in general, it's a good idea to have a... So that in theory, you can stop. If something starts going wrong, you can just stop taking oh, that yes. drug. And then... Yeah, when you when you direct it to specific genes. Yes, I, I yeah. I'm sorry, I didn't understand the question. Yes, when we when we 
direct EBDET Cas9 to specific genes, we can control if the cell, if we activate a kill switch or not. Yeah, yeah, I just wanted to point that out uh, for the audience that this is like, another, you know, another very amazing aspect for the future, for future treatment. So it's, um, it's wonderful. So I wanted to check with you because you've been here over an hour and a half and you talked a lot. <laughs> <laughs> How are you feeling? <laughs> and um, yeah, this was such a great talk. Um, I feel so great. Thank you so much for this incredible opportunities. I'm I'm gonna go to the archives and uh, listen to a whole bunch of cool talks. Actually, a previous guest speaker of ours, she was here because uh, she gave a talk about her neurodevelopmental uh, PhD um, study, and she went to postdoc position and. Um, is going into your field basically in epigenetic and gene regulation so she came to listen so that was good um cool. yeah so uh, the ethan just joined us ethan do you have like a, a last question you want to ask our guest speaker uh no thanks though okay great just checking okay uh does anyone have maybe a last question um last comment Oh, yeah, uh, if I may, I just uh, have one uh, question, the last question, if I may, yeah. Uh, Dr. Levy, I, I'm curious, the, uh, as a, uh, not in the field, not as a layperson, but inter very interested in, you know, the cool research I presented, just, uh, yeah, really appreciate that. The So on the figure uh, 4A, that uh, where you show that uh, uh, the, uh, you uh, the, TBX uh, 18 that uh, 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 basically uh, somehow identify the uh, Tata uh, box and uh, uh, INR. The are they are, are these like the Euro suspects or how what what led you? I mean, I, I do search in the text. There's some mentioning of a technique called the uh, G quadruplex. Uh, would you be uh, uh, kind of to, to elaborate a little bit? How, how would you, how did you like um, identify that uh, as the target? Yeah. So I looked at a whole bunch of transcriptional elements. Uh, some of them were transcription binding sites. The other were the quadruplexes that you're mentioning. And each one of them has its own uh, software and website to kind of like plug in the sequence and see if that's a good hit uh, for either transcription factor binding site or or um, uh, quadruplex uh, uh, chromatin architecture. Um, I, in order to find the Tata box and, uh, and the INRs, uh, uh, what we call the initiators, I used the Element um, software, uh, and it, of course, it's it's in the paper. You can find it. Uh, th that is where I plugged in a thousand base pairs of the promoter region, and I got um, 
um, uh, very strong hits to the Tata Box and the initiators. Great, thank you. Of course. Okay, great. Thank you so much again. Um, and come back anytime. And yeah, if you want me to send you links um, for any talks, or if you want to join us again and listen or be part of the discussion, ask questions, please come. <laughs> you were so such a great speaker. It was just very wonderful having you here. You were a great um, public speaker. <laughs> Likewise. Thank you so much, Katarina. <laughs> Thank you. And Bye. thank you. Yeah. And um, thank you everyone for being here, asking questions, uh, being interested. And uh, if you liked it, follow the club, um, Science Society, and we will have more um, events, maybe not exactly like this, but uh, we have more guest speakers coming. And uh, tomorrow morning, uh, at 11.30 a.m. EST, we'll have Dr. Carl Ernst. He will talk about uh, demo switch he found for human uh, brain cell growth. And then we'll have a doc on in the evening. Then we'll have two rooms because of rescheduling. And then somehow it, was, it became two rooms on one day. Dr. Gagliado, he will be talking about reducing brain damage and Alzheimer's of a recent paper of his. And then on Wednesday, we'll have unlocking the code of sight with Dr. Bruce Hansen about the visual system. And then on Thursday, we'll have in the morning at 10 a.m. EST, a quantum physics room. Uh, Dr. Kutak from, um, he's a nuclear physics professor in, in Poland. He will talk about the interior of protons and how they are maximally entangled. And then we'll have um, Dr. Huang um, talking about his research and showing why most smokers don't get lung cancer. It's a recent Nature publication and it will be very interesting. And on Friday, we'll have uh, from Japan, a team coming, Dr. Yanigasawa and Dr. Fukuma, talking about how they can read pictures of your mind's eye. Uh, so basically what you visualize in your mind. So yeah, it's an exciting week. And we started with this amazing talk. I really loved how you started explaining, close your eyes and imagine all your cells to explain epigenetics. That was really, <laughs> this will stay forever in my mind. That was amazing. So, uh, yeah, thank you so much. Right. And Thanks, guys. Take care. Bye. Thank Have you. a good night. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Thanks, Jerry. Thanks, Katrina.